I'm Sue Sweeney, and I'm part of the teaching team here at Catalyst. Uh, some of you know my husband, Jeff, and we have two little girls. Clara is three, and Stella will be seven years old this week. Well, my girls are pretty much the most precious things that have ever existed, and I know you're all going to agree with me. Um, in addition to being their mother, I also work full-time for the Richardson School District, and I spent eight years as a classroom teacher high school. So last month, the worst thing that could ever happen to a person like me who is a parent and also a teacher happened. I was at work in a meeting, minding my own business, and I received this message on my phone from Stella's first grade teacher. Just let that sink in for you. Excuse me? This teacher must have gotten my child confused with someone else. Literally, my first thought was, this is a case of mistaken identity. She sent this message to the wrong parent. Surely this cannot be right. My sweet little princess, Stella, whose mom was a teacher, whose grandmommy was a teacher, whose aunt is a teacher. Stella has been persistently reminded since birth by three important family members to always listen to her teachers and follow their directions. What is happening? I sent a few clarifying questions to the teacher and discovered that my worst nightmare had indeed come true. Stella was not listening to her teacher or following directions. And a hot rush of shame and embarrassment washed over me. And this happens to me a lot, actually. I let the things my children do embarrass me sometimes because I view these things as personal failures on my part. I'm quick to view their behavior as a direct reflection of me. Sometimes I want people to think I'm perfect. I want people to respect what I say, and I want my family to have financial success and our way of life to feel secure. And I come by this honestly because this is what our culture expects of me. This is what our world expects of me. I want people to believe that my religious life and my everyday life are in balance. I want to live according to what it means to be a Christian, but I don't want to be so into my faith that people think I'm some kind of weirdo. I want to be the person God wants me to be, but I also want to be the person the world wants me to be. I want to live out my God-given calling, but I also want power in the form of respect, security, and success. And you probably feel like this too. And there is nothing inherently wrong with wanting to be more powerful, respectable, or a good parent, or whatever. The problem is when we put these desires ahead of God. We want this life that God has promised us, but not when it's in opposition with what the world tells us we should want. We want what the world says is the good life and what God says is the good life, so we try to balance the two. So this morning we're going to talk about the problem with this balancing act. 
we have two feet, one foot living in what the world wants and one foot living out what God wants, but we cannot straddle the two. We cannot find our balance. And the good news is we don't need to be balanced at all. It's actually just better if we throw this whole balancing act out the window, because if we do, we inherit hope in life. Will you stand this morning? Let's sing together. We're in a series here at Catalyst called Empathy for the Devil. And we're meeting six of the worst villains in the Bible and asking, what did they do and why did they do it? We're not looking to apologize or make excuses for them. We simply want to practice some empathy. We want to put ourselves in their shoes because ultimately, we'll discover we're more like them than we thought. And reflecting on their sin will illuminate the seeds of those same sins in our lives. Today we're going to meet an evil queen named Jezebel. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. And if you borrowed one of the Bibles from the back table... You can find these verses on page 212. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take that one home with you. The name Jezebel is probably familiar to you. It's the name of a high-end magazine which covers the details of living in modern luxury. It's, It's also the name of a popular lingerie brand that qualifies for Amazon Prime shipping, just in case you wanted to know. I'm sorry. If you grew up in church, you've heard the the name before because calling someone a godless Jezebel was a pretty serious insult. Jezebel is heralded as one of the original bad girls of the Bible. The biblical authors call her a harlot, even though it appears she was faithful to her husband Ahab, the king of Israel, the nation of God's people. This association with promiscuity is likely because she was a foreigner who brought the worship of the pagan god Baal to Israel. And all throughout the Old Testament, we hear God forbid the people of Israel to worship any other gods or engage in the child sacrifice like many of the other nearby civilizations and kingdoms. So let's see what the Old Testament authors had to say about Jezebel and her husband, King Ahab. So let's read together. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Let's look at that last line one more time. Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than did all the kings of Israel before him. That's pretty bad because there were a lot of kings in Israel's history who did a lot of messed up stuff. 
So what did King Ahab do? Well, he married Jezebel and allowed her to bring her religion to Israel with her. Not to replace Israel's religion, but more like in addition to it. And that doesn't really sound so bad. Jezebel was a princess of Sidonia, which means she was Phoenician. Phoenicia was a great ancient civilization, and you may remember from your high school, high school world history class that the Phoenicians were the ones who invented the alphabet. That is pretty much what we use today. By the world standards at this time, Phoenicia was an advanced society with plenty of wealth and relative equality for women. At this time, Israel, by comparison, was nothing but a poor little backwater kingdom with weird religious and cultural beliefs. It is likely that Jezebel sought her purpose to improve Israel by making it at least as powerful as its neighbors. She sought her business to help her husband Ahab by acquiring land and wealth for the royal family. Unfortunately, this required her to plot the murder of a Hebrew vineyard owner. But hey, sometimes to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. And Jezebel was not the first biblical person to have someone murdered. Even God's favorite, King David, killed a man for selfish reasons. Jezebel was just trying to help her family out. She was just trying to bring up Israel to the world's standards of success. So, how did Queen Jezebel turn her husband, King Ahab, into the worst king in Israel's history? It's important here to understand how God feels about idolatry. The Hebrew word for God is Yahweh, and the Israelites believe the worship of anything other than Yahweh was and is considered idolatry, idolatry being the worst of the sins. When God, or Yahweh, gave Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the first commandment was this, and we'll read it together. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is serious. The Lord your God and a jealous God. So a jealous God, that can make us kind of uncomfortable. Does that mean that God is jealous like a jealous husband? And that's not what this means. We're called by God to live in God's image because of God's love for us. God knows that giving our worship to anyone or anything else will only lead us down a path of fear and death. The Israelites knew, and we know today, that Yahweh, or God's way, is the way of hope and life. And how did Jezebel get God's people to engage in idolatry exactly? When she married Ahab and moved over to Israel from her Phoenician home, she set up temples to worship Baal in Israel. This caught the immediate attention of God's prophet Elijah, who warned the Hebrew people again that their purpose was to follow Yahweh and Yahweh alone. To further the point, 
Elijah put on a great show of challenging Jezebel's priests of Baal in front of all the people of Israel. The competition was to see which God could rain down fire on a sacrificial offering first, Yahweh or Baal. Hundreds of priests of Baal called and called for their God to bring fire to the offering, and nothing happened. Even though Elijah threw water all over his offering, Yahweh still miraculously set the sacrifice on fire. Even in the face of this amazing evidence of Yahweh's power, the Hebrew people still let Baal worship seep into their lives. To them, Yahweh was the God of the desert, of victory and power and big defining moments for the Hebrew people, but Baal was the God of rain and crops, which was more fitting with everyday life. And I know what you're thinking right now. This is some weird Old Testament stuff. And I know I'm all good because I do not, definitely do not worship Baal or any other ancient pagan god that I know of, so I'm good. But I do need to ask myself, who is the god of my big defining moments, my biggest challenges and victories, and who is the god of my everyday regular life? When big great things happen, I give God the glory, and when I am in crisis, I call on God for help. And God feels nearest to me in these moments. What is harder for me to determine is where God fits into my regular life of family, and friends, and going to work and paying my bills. And this is where I'm most likely to give over my worship to something else without really even realizing it. If I'm honest, in my everyday life, I find myself splitting my devotion and worship into two spheres or circles. In one circle, I want to live in the image of God. I want to live my life in such a way that it helps usher in the kingdom of God here on earth. I want my life to be about loving my neighbor and bringing about peace and justice. In order to do this, I have to die to myself. I have to admit that I cannot do this on my own that given over to my basic human desires, I will only try to make myself greater by making others less. I need the hope and help of the Holy Spirit. But in this other circle, I also want to be successful by the world standards. I want people to think I am handling it all on my own and I look good doing it. I want people to respect me. I want to be able to do the things I want and have the things I want whenever I want. In our world, this type of power is the standard of success, to have more than others and to be more than others because we feel like we deserve it. In our world, this is also a God we worship, a false God of power, material, success, fame, and ego. So I want to find what our culture calls balance. So like a Venn diagram, I put these two opposing circles together and I try to find some overlap in the middle. And we think the good life is found in this sweet spot where the gods overlap, where our religious life and our everyday life overlap only when it is considered by others to be socially, economically, or politically appropriate. But this isn't the good life. No matter how hard we try to balance it all, we can never quite do what God wants and what the world wants at the same time because God's way leads to life and the world's way leads to death, and we cannot have it both ways. 
There is no place where these two things overlap. There is no balance. We cannot worship two gods, and to try to is to engage in idolatry. So, how do I know when I'm engaged in idolatry against God? The questions to ask are, where am I giving my worship, and to whom am I giving my worship? And what is worship? Worship is where my heart is. So how do I know where my heart is? I can look to where I'm giving my time, attention, and effort. And if I'm honest, I find myself more often than not worshiping at the altar of a version of myself that is fully made into the image of the world. It is a version of my life in pursuit of security in my social, economic, and political life. I so easily subscribe to the idea that my value in society only increases when someone else's value decreases. With Stella, of course I want her to learn in school, but I also don't want people to think I'm a bad mom. And so the same desire that pulls me towards wanting Stella to grow and flourish also tempts me to parent Stella in a way that might be unhealthy for her. It's easy for me to believe that my success must come at the expense of others. But hey, to make an omelet, sometimes you have to break a few eggs. And this is not the life God has called us to. What I should really give my time and attention and effort to is a version of myself that is surrendered to the Holy Spirit and made into the image of God. And Jezebel wanted to find this overlap as well between her and Israel's religious life and their everyday social, political, and economic life. She wanted the people of Israel to find their power in being made in the image of God, but also worship pagan gods like the rest of the world so they could increase their status on the world stage. Jezebel wanted Israel to be powerful in a way the world expected them to be powerful, to exert more social, political, and economic power at the expense of others. In a world that operates like everything is a zero-sum game and where there can only be winners if there are losers, God wanted a different path for the people of Israel. And because God loves us all so much, God wants a different path for us too. But like Jezebel, we want to veer off this path and find our own way because we think we know better and we don't want people to think that we're weirdos. But we cannot have it both ways, and we don't want it both ways, and Jesus tells us why. So turn with me to Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And if you have one of our Bibles, that's on page 580. Here, Jesus explains why the more we lean into the circle of what the world wants us to be, the smaller we make the circle of what it means to follow God with our whole heart. As we continue to pursue, pursue more social, economic, and political power and collect treasures as evidence of our worldly successes, sin is invited to creep deeper into our hearts and lives. Here, Jesus explains that we cannot have one foot in the desires of the world and one foot in the desires of God. We have to put God first. And Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Catalyst, how do you know where your heart is? What are your treasures and where are you storing them? And I want to be clear here that God has no problem with trying to take care of your family and friends. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to work hard and do your best in this life. It's just about putting true value in the proper place. It's about putting God first and the desires of the world second. So let me offer you an analogy. Pastor and author Shane Hips asks us to think of God as one and all the stuff that makes up our lives, our family, our jobs, our friends and social groups and our church to think of all of these things as zeros. So if we put any of that stuff ahead of God, they actually don't add any value to our lives. In fact, the more we put in front of that one, the more cluttered everything looks. One has the same value as zero, 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 one. But if we put God first, then everything else adds value. Every zero we put in its proper place after God makes the overall value of our lives greater and greater. One isn't the same as 10 or 100 or 1,000 or 100,000 or a million. When we put God first, our whole lives are ordered better and everything flourishes and finds its place. And this is why Jesus insists we seek God's kingdom first. So what does that mean to seek God's kingdom first? What does it mean to live into the image of God? Is that about making sure that my butt is in a seat in church every Sunday? Is it about just not being a jerk to people? What does it look like? Catalyst, it looks like listening to the Holy Spirit. It's about rejecting this idea that we can balance what God wants and what the world wants. The world wants us to win the social, economic, and political power game so we can store up more treasures here on earth. And more personally for me, the world wants my children to always be dressed better, behaving better, and always be winning while you're losing because it makes me look better. And this explains why I take Stella's teacher's concerns so personally. According to the world standards, everyone, including people I hardly know, need to see me as successful. It's why I felt this hot rush of shame and embarrassment when I got that message from the teacher. This was not my daughter's failure. This was a parenting failure. This was my failure. Her teacher made it look like I was screwing up and I didn't have my life together. As if I really did. My first impulse is to try and solve this on my own, but my own desires are inherently bent away from God because really my only desire is to make myself look better and the best way to do that is to try to shame someone else and make them feel worse than I do. I can either make my daughter feel utterly miserable for embarrassing me 
or I can make the teacher feel like an idiot for even questioning that my family is anything other than better than everybody else's. And this moment is really an opportunity to let God into my everyday life. This is a chance for me to stop and listen to the Holy Spirit. Maybe this choice of punishing my daughter or punishing the teacher is really a false dichotomy. The Holy Spirit can show me a third way that involves making this a positive learning opportunity for Stella and a way to build a productive relationship with her teacher. The world wants me to make myself more, even if it means making others less. But the Holy Spirit calls me to forego more social and economic and political security if the cost is the oppression of others. The Holy Spirit calls me in situations where I'm privileged to recognize and empower others who are not. The Spirit reminds me of what my treasures really should be and where I should store them. And what was truly evil about Jezebel was the way she tried to normalize living this life with one foot in what God wants and another foot in what the world wants. The scriptures again and again point to what God cares about and what the world cares about to be in opposition to one another. We're going to approach this communion table today in an effort to put God's way before everything else in our lives. This table invites us to share the meal Jesus shared with his followers the night before he was killed. At that meal, he broke bread and gave it to his followers saying, This is my body broken for you. Eat it. Later in the meal, he offered a cup of wine, saying, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it. Jesus shows us what it means to put God's way first. He followed God all the way to the cross, even giving up his very breath rather than to divide his allegiances. We follow his lead, walk in his footsteps, and ask God to make us into God's image. And you don't have to be a member of Catalyst to receive communion with us today. If you're willing to put God above all else and to reject the idol of balance, then you're welcome to come forward. Before we approach this table this morning, I'm going to lead you all in a prayer of examine. I'll ask you four questions to give you space to reflect on what God is calling you to do today. As we've worked through these questions, I'll pray for all of us, and then you're welcome to come forward as you're ready. So here's the first question. Where in the last week did I seek God's way above all else? Where, in the last week, did I put other priorities above God? Where, in the next week, will I be tempted to put other priorities above God?
how can I seek God's kingdom first this week? Let's continue to pray. God, you created our lives, and you know how they fit together. Forgive us for listening to the voices in our world that whisper that family and wealth and respectability or balance belong in the same breath as our praise of you. We have seen in the story of Jezebel that this can only end in pain for us and for our families. We approach your table today as a people who want to seek your way first. Teach us yet again that your path leads to life. May these wafers and juice become a spiritual food that opens our eyes to see the way of Jesus and our ears to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit. Make us your people, wholly committed to you. Order our lives. Show us what should stay and what needs to go and what's in the wrong place. Order our priorities and our steps. Breathe new life into us. We offer these prayers and approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. Next week, we meet Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus to death. But for now, Catalyst, as you go, may you dispense with the lie that God wants you to live a balanced life. Seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness. And as you put God first, May you find all those other areas in your life begin to make more sense. May you see what should stay and what needs to go. May you find wholeness and flourishing as you follow God's way. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.